David Grossman, welcome to a British summer. You really have to, get, to do something regarding your weather. Something is wrong with the weather here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was talking to a Mexican novelist uh, about this yesterday, and I said I t the only way to try and make this work is to think that it's the price we pay for all that green that's out there. <laughs> it's, just, uh, uh, it's just what we have to do. Um, thank you very much for coming um, today. Uh, we, David and I, the two Davids, uh, are determined to enjoy ourselves and determined that you should in, enjoy the session as well. Um, obviously for me it's, a, it's an enormous honour to be here with somebody who is such a renowned writer and such a terrific writer. Um, I'm not going to do a huge, great auto, uh, a huge great biographical uh, thing on David Grossman. Um, many of you will have read several of his books, and many of you will have read this, uh, his latest book, which was published in Israel in 2008 and over here in an English version in 2010, To the End of the Land, um, which is <clears throat> a remarkable novel and has garnered some extraordinary reviews. Um, but rather than talk endlessly about David myself, it's much, much better to listen uh, to him. Um, David, you and I are very close contemporaries. Um, you know, if we'd been born in these two different places at more or less the, uh, at more or less the same time, just a few months apart. Um, as I read uh, To the End of the Land, I kept on seeing moments in my kind of Pacific life here in Britain, where the biggest thing that happens is that the Queen has never moved. Um, as we see this, um, and yet the book starts um, in a hospital in 1967. Um, and it starts with a girl character who makes the acquaintance of two male characters. But the very first thing that you're aware of that she is saying is in the background of 1967 that there is a voice saying from the radio saying that Israel may be obliterated. And that sets the tone for something I think that happens right the way through the book, which is what we call precariousness. This notion that life, political life, but personal life particularly, at a certain point is very, very finely poised. Anything could happen, that the certainties have gone. Um, were, were you aware of that theme, I mean, when you were writing? You know, I was aware of that uh, probably as a fish is aware of the water. Uh, this is the, one of the, the, the basic feelings of, of being an Israeli. But I think even before that, I remember from a very young age the age of four, I think, when I realized that people are going to die, that everybody dies in the end. And I think that had a very strong effect on my life. When I was older, I read in a diary of Mozart. Mozart wrote, every night before I go to sleep, I think that maybe tomorrow I shall not be. And I, I found it to be a very uh, useful thought. I think it really pushes you to, to make the best of life. 
But of course, being an Israeli helps for that uh, feeling, you know, living all your life among wars uh, amidst a terrible violence all the time almost that is directed at you, that you perform against others. Um, Israel is a country that has a very long and, and sometimes heroic a past, and very agitative uh, present, but our sense of having future is very problematic. The, the fragility of Israel as a state, as a nation, when it comes to having future is, is uh, really amazing. Maybe people from the outside cannot really understand it because what you see on television is the, the iron fist of Israel, you know, the militant uh, country, the very strong country, the superpower of the region, but almost every Israeli feels first and foremost this fragility, this lack of promise, of guarantee that Israel will exist. I, I you know, I, I think maybe we shall get to it in the end, but for me, the, the hope for having peace for Israel is the hope for having this existential solidity you know, that, that to, to know that we are there, that we shall be there, that we shall see sequence of generations there. And until now, this is not taken for granted. And in this book, into the end of the land, even the name of it in English, by the way, in Hebrew, the name is different. In Hebrew, I called it uh, a woman flees tiding or a woman escapes from the news. Uh, even this, to the end of the land, it indicates or implies this option that what might be if, yes. And we live with this if all the time. It's a very, very concrete option for us. The book, you began the book um, three years or more before one of the major and most tragic events of your own life which is a remarkable, well, it feels like a coincidence, I don't know how, how else to describe it. Um, maybe the best way is if you begin by telling, by telling us how you came to write this book, which is, in essence, based on the woman, as you say, escaping the news or any possibility of the news that her son, who has gone into the army, may have been killed. Yeah. I will say briefly, I'll describe the, the plot of it just to, to make it more clear. It is a book about Ora, who is 50-something years old, Israeli woman, very typical Israeli woman, if there is something like that. And, and in the, the beginning of the story, after the, the prologue, she takes her son to the gathering point of the army from which he will be sent to an operation, military operation in the West Bank. And she, she brings him to this place, uh, to, to the gathering point, and she comes back home and she starts to await the notifiers of the army. Now in Israel there is a very developed machinery of notification because of the... the tragic experience that, that we have. And they come and knock 
on your door at every hour when they got the final confirmation on the death of your beloved one. Um, and she sits at home and she awaits them. She knows they will come. She has this very poignant intuition. And then suddenly it occurs to her that it takes two for bad news, one to deliver and one to receive. And what if she's not there to receive? Maybe the whole machinery will be reversed for a day until they find her or a minute or a second, even a second is, is enough in such a situation. And, and she runs away from home. She will not be there to wait for them. And she runs to the end of the land, to the very northern border between Israel and Lebanon, Israel and Syria. And on her way, she takes, she almost kidnaps a man called, called Avram. Avram who was the love of her youth and maybe he is the love of her life. And Avram is a broken person. He was like a volcano of ideas and imagination and creativity and sensuality when he was 15 and 20 and 21. And when he was 21, he fell captive by the Egyptians in the 73 war. And he returned from captivity broken in his body and his soul. And he doesn't want to have any contact with life. Yet, Ora keeps some contact with him. And he is the one that she chose to take with her to this drive or, or journey towards the north from where they both start to wander, to go in Israel, to go in, in the Galilee. And she tells him the story life of the son that she took to the army. She tells the, all, all the minutia, all the small moments of how she used to breastfeed him with this intimacy of breastfeeding when she looks at the child and she feels how she is imprinted in the pupils of his eyes and she, she knows that never again in her life or never before she has been or she will be so beautiful as she is in this moment. Or when she teaches him, she helps him the homeworks, uh, to do homeworks in mathematics. And, and those moments that we all know, yes, we have experienced them either as parents or as children. Or the first moment when Ofer, Ofer is the name of the soldier, when he stood up on his feet as a baby and suddenly all, all perspectives change, you know, suddenly... He hears differently, he sees differently, the place he occupies in, in space is different. And she tells him all these stories. And I thought, when I finished the book, not when I was writing, why did I choose this idea of telling the life story in order to protect the son? And, and I thought that, you know, when, when, when we take care of our children and we try to be good parents or good enough parents. We do it because it's, I mean, it's important and we want them to grow up as good human beings and we want to provide them with all the, the conditions to, to feel good and to be well. And because of that, we take them to the karate group and to the ballet group and to the dentist and all, all that. But there is also another very delicate layer in which we as if we make a deal with God or with the devil or with destiny or whatever. And we say, look, 
We are doing our share of the deal by taking him to the ballet, uh, kung fu, and dentist. You, God, devil, then, uh, uh, destiny, you do your part. Spare this child. But when there is danger hovers above the head of our child, there is an immediate, immediate feeling that all the good that we have infused into this child, all our part of the deal, that it fades out suddenly, that it's not there, it evaporates. And what Ora does in the book is to reinfuse significance and strength by telling the story, by reminding those little, or mentioning these, those little moments of accumulating this, this person into, into, into a human being. That's a wonderful answer, but not to the question I asked you. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but that's fine. But that's fine. That's no. That's no problem at all. Because we're coming back to. I mean, because it's difficult. Obviously, it's difficult to answer. You're, you actually, after having begun a book about a woman who was on the run from the notifiers, you were notified after you'd begun the book. Yeah. Uh, Three years and three months after I started writing it, uh, our son Uri uh, was killed in uh, the war in Lebanon in 2006. It's almost six, year, six years now. Uh, yeah, that's a fact. Now, how, how in a sense had your book, your writing anticipated this possibility? And how did you then manage the book which had begun with this theme in the period afterwards? It's hard for me to answer. I know that I started writing this book also because of anxiety to him. And I remember when I started writing it, I, and we spoke about it in, in the family and with him and my wife, his brother and sister, and I said that I want I want to accompany him as much as I can because I knew he's going to to be a combative soldier. I knew he will have to serve in the occupied territories. And he, I knew that he's going to face harsh situations, both physical and moral and all kind of dilemmas. I knew that for him being a leftist, in his opinions, it will be even harder mm. than than usual because he will really be trapped even in kind of inner dilemmas. Uh, and I felt that writing the book will allow me to, you know, not, not to shield myself from what he will go through. You ask how was it to go back to the story. I, I went to the story a day after the Shiva. The Shiva is the seven days of lamenting that we have in Judaism. And I went back because uh, this, I mean, writing is the way that I always knew in order to understand my life. I, of course, I have never had to, to use it in such an acute situation, but okay, that was the situation and I did what I can in order to 
to understand. I, I, I felt, you know, if I was doomed already to be thrown into this uh, accursed land, at least I will map it as much as I can. And for me, mapping is writing about it. And I, I remember very strongly the, the, in the days after, you know, sitting and looking for a word or, or a metaphor or something like that, and then I suddenly asked myself, am I an idiot? You know, all around me, the world has collapsed and I'm looking for a word. And then, uh, you know, when I found the right word, there was this feeling that I did something right in a world that turned to be totally wrong, in a world that was then a big mistake for me. And, and finding the thread of the story again and being able to imagine even, to imagine or to fantasize and to... to to infuse my characters with love and, and humor and passion and, and whatever. For me, after a while, I understood it is a way to act against the gravity of, of, of sadness, of grief, and to choose life in, in the end of it. But also to find the only meaning you can. Meaning in what? In life, generally? Because to, 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 I, make, to make the only sense of it that you can. You know, I, I'm not sure I thought of it in this... I don't, I'm not sure I thought at all, actually. It was a very intuitive choice really? doing it then. But for me, always, writing is, is a way to, to understand and, and to make things more significant, more relevant. Uh, I think, you know, this is the, the greatest reward of writing, that when we write, with, we deal with the most relevant things. You know, usually so many things in our life, they are imposed on us by irrelevant people, by irrelevant coincidences or arbitrariness. But if you write a story, even if in the beginning you, I do not understand why, why do I have to write this story? Why do I have to write this character? I have nothing to do with this character. <laughs> and there, then after a while, you know, suddenly I understand how I could have been this character. I mean, I, maybe I was spared from its destiny, but I want to, to, to try to understand the relevance between me and this other human being and what it tells me, what it reveals me about myself. Well, that's interesting um, in this instance additionally because this is a book about a woman. Um, men writing the characters of women, particularly in such an extraordinarily intense and intimate way, but in any case, is a rare thing. Do you remember the moment when you said, okay, I'm going to be a woman? Yeah. Uh, the, the answer that I can give you is that I just surrendered to the option of aura within me. Uh, and of course it was very natural to write from the point of view of a woman in a story like that when where, where so much, such a great deal of the book deals with with the family life and with the the, the, the primal connection between 
a mother and, and a child. And I always feel, and forgive me, maybe it's incorrect, but I always feel that, that this connection between mothers and children are more primal than the connection of the father and the child. And I say it as a father who is was, is very involved in the life of my three children. And I, I mean, I, I, but I regard myself as a motherly father, yes. And when I say that, I already indicate what I think. Uh, but there was another thing. I also thought that a man will not escape the notifiers. Mm. Men, Basically, I, I have this intuition that they will sit and wait obediently for the, the system to get them, you know, for the machinery of the army to get them. Maybe also because it is men who have created most of those machineries, yes, uh, the army, government, state, war, all those big systems that reward men more even when they kill men. And, and a woman or let's say, you know, not to generalize in a stupid way, but if I look at some women that I know, I feel that they have this slight skepticism towards these boys' games of army, war, etc. I always think of this episode in the book of Genesis, Bereshit, when God came to Abraham, the patriarch, Abraham, our father, forefather, and he told him, give me your son, your only one, the one that you love, give me Isaac to sacrifice him, to kill him. Now, God is very intelligent. He came to Avram, not to his wife, Sarah. He knew. I just think of her reaction to such a terrible suggestion, you know. So, but, of course, again, another pleasure of writing is trying to, to become someone else, someone who is different, who is, who is really an other for me. Usually we are so uh, protected from others, uh, not only from enemies. You know, maybe you think that it's very uh, productive to shield yourself from your enemy. By the way, I, I will argue with this assumption. I think it's very important to allow the, the enemy to infiltrate into your own system so you will be able really to understand the enemy more, you will be able also to fight him in a more effective way, but maybe you will be able also to make peace with him uh, faster. Uh, so I, I will not go into that, but we, we are really protected from others. Sometimes you see uh, couples who are married together happily, you know, for 20, 30, 40 years, present company excluded. Okay, it's not here. You are wonderful people, it's in Israel, okay? And, and they, they love each other and they, they support and they are good parents and yet they do not really know the other. They mm. do not really allow themselves to be exposed to the, the chaos that prevails inside another human being. Now, when I write, I have this really privilege of exposing myself totally to another other. It can be all kind of others, and I've written in, in, my, in my life about others that are so terrifying for me. I wrote about, you know, about Nazi commander of extermination camp. I wrote about many other others. And whenever I did it, I, I didn't feel threatened by that. I mean, I, I, it just allowed me 
to know myself better, to understand why these people act the way they do. Uh, and, and to write aura and to be this character whom I really love, I must say, and to have the privilege of being here for five years, I can tell you I'm really, I mean, I long for a character like that, you know, to be here, yeah. In the end, she can't, whatever her fantasy is described as magical thinking, and I think that's a fair description of it, the fact is she can't escape. Can she? I don't know. The ending is open in the book. Uh, and uh, I tell it right now, it's not a detective story. Uh, the ending is open. We don't know if she managed to, to save her son or not. Uh, you know, I mean in the sense that we can't escape. I, I, I think of, of your question. Of course we cannot escape... Uh, the, the totality of death, we cannot. But we can have our stand in front of death. And we can have... I, now, now, I'm not talking even about, uh, you know, my future death, uh, but the way to, to confront such a terrible experience, in that sense, again, I think maybe the only sense that I will use this term luck or lucky regarding me in, in, in this occasion. Uh, but having this ability to write gave me at least the illusion that I am not frozen in front of what has happened. Mm. Of course, things are irreversible. I cannot reverse the events. But at least I do not stand in front of that helpless. I had my way of, of moving. This is one of the things that, that, that are so difficult when you are confronted with, with such an occurrence uh, that you feel fossilized. You know, death fossilizes not only the dead ones but also the people around the dead one. And writing allowed me this maybe illusion of, of flexibility. And, and when I had this, this feeling, I suddenly stopped feeling a victim of what happened. Even just by giving my private names to the situation, uh, which again, it is the heart of writing. I think we all write about things that thousands of people in thousands of years have written before us. But the ability to give our own words and not to use words of other people and not to use the cliché of, of the media or the cliché that were given to us by the government or the army or the situation or our fears, this is the heart of writing. And, and of course, after what I have experienced, this ability seems to me really a way to be with capital B in, in such a situation. David, don't, don't feel obliged to answer this next question. It occurs to me now, and you may think it's too intrusive, but given that writing was um, what you had to do and, uh, in a sense, how you stood in the face of death, given also that it was written from a woman's point of view, 
I'm left wondering very much what your wife thought of the book. And if you don't want to answer that, I'll understand. I would just say that if uh, she would not have approved the book, would not have been published. Uh, she, she's, all, she's not only my first reader, but when, when I write, uh, the book becomes, you know, the part of the household. We, we speak about it, and, and I consult. She's a psychologist, but uh, I think it's the person that she is that, that matters, not her profession. And uh, yeah, I, I, I will not, uh, I, I don't think I will disclose too much information, but you know, I, I work at home. I, I, I have a very strange life because most of my life I spent in one room, really, most of my life. Uh, and, and therefore, what? Is it a good room? Yeah, it's, it's a good room. I tell you why, why, what, what's good about it. When I write, I walk. I cannot, I cannot sit. I mean, I sit when I have to type or to, to write, but most of the hours of the day I spend walking. I think I'm doing something like 20 kilometers every day. I do not exaggerate, really. And, and my wife, if you ask, she says I'm burning the carpet. Hmm. Yeah, because I, I need it. I don't know why. Probably there are some explanations to it. Uh, and this room allows me, allows me to walk. So... My word, my world, in a way, is quite limited for a great deal of, of the year. And, and what I have to bring to the family conversation is the, the story that I'm writing. And, and every three, four, five years, we change all the set. You know, I bring in new characters, and I think it's nice to, yeah. <laughs> and you, I, I've also read that you were discussing aspects of the book with your son before he died in the in the period before uh, he was uh, he, he went off to serve um, and you discussed the characters with the other members of your family since maybe not your your daughter who's is she 18 now she's 20 now she's yeah. 20 now yeah 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 I did but th that's what I can tell about it okay um one of the things that was going on at the same time as you were writing the novel and as the Lebanese war um, uh, unfolded and the action against Hezbollah was that you were increasingly vocal about, not that Israel didn't have a right to defend itself, but that there was an urgent need for much more imaginative political thinking. And In fact, you spoke to a lot of people then. I'm wondering whether you think that the, that the amount of room for people like you has diminished. When I think back to Oslo in 1994 and the kind of optimistic sense that people had that a, a real left of centre but also a real peace movement was possible within Israel matching a real peace movement that might exist amongst Palestinians. And just this sense that we have about Israel, and I have it also very strongly here, of that ground diminishing until one stands on nearly nothing. We are, we, when I say we, I mean the left in Israel. The left is what is left of the left. Mm. Uh, yeah, we are, we become smaller and marginalized. It's uh, almost a natural process, I think, uh, in an atmosphere of fear and suspicion 
there was kind of a, a wave of hope in the early 90s. This, uh, this hope was extinguished, I think, with the, the assassination, the murder of Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, and since then, almost constantly, all our governments are dominated by uh, fear. Um, it is really despairing to see how after having tried the way of peace only once, how we are all eager to, to despair of this option. Okay. How we needed only one proof for the failure of it to swear that there will not be any time in the future real viable peace between us and our neighbors. How war is tempting and violence is tempting even though we have tried and exhausted them so many times in the past and we know that they bring upon us only destruction and grief. And yet, we are, we, when I say we, I do not mean only the Israelis. It's, it's all the, the partners in, in the Middle East uh, conflict. How we are never tired of the option of, of war and how we are so programmed by it, how we formulate our life and our future in, in the terms of, of war and belligerence and hatred. Uh, and of course, in such an atmosphere, uh, you see that you cannot keep war only in the, you know, in, in the, the borderline between you and your neighbors, your, you and your enemies. It infiltrates into the inner organs of your own society. And we see it in Israel, we see it in Palestine, we see what we have now in Syria, which is another variant or nuance of that. But you see the amount of violence and hatred to, I mean, from Assad to his own people. And of course, you can imagine what he would have done to us had he had the chance to do that. Uh, and the lines of our dilemma become more and more clear as the situation aggravates, you know, because really we want to keep Israel as a democracy, as an enlightened place. But what happens around us almost dooms Israel and the Israelis to be cornered in, in, in dark corners of our national psyche. It makes us dominated by fears, and when you are dominated by fear, you act, you tend to act in an extreme violent yeah. way. Uh, by the way, it's, since I, 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 I'd rather talk about literature and life rather than politics, I, this dilemma is also a very personal one, you know, and, and it's, it's part of, of this book. You want to raise children that will be open to people, trust-giving, that will be humanist, liberal, pluralist, but maybe by so doing, you are not preparing them to their lives. Maybe you expose them to situations that they will not know how to react. 
you know, how to be both Athens and Sparta at the same time. If well, you this is uh, it's very interesting you should say that. When listening to you talk about the difference between the mothers and the fathers, I mean, one of the things which is very traditional in that role is for the mother to play Athens and the father to play Sparta. For the mother to say, come to my bosom, and the father say, it's time the child left. Uh, alert the child to the reality. And you then locate that masculinity, femininity, around the grounds of who creates the armies, who creates the... Uh, uh, and so on. So it's, it's interesting that this division should work again in the way you're just describing. It works, as, as you very well put it, and I will also add that this, the sons, when, when their time to go to the army comes, there is a slight remoting, if you can say so, taking some distance from the mother. Uh, and I think it has to do, well, it has to do maybe with the fact that the father and the son, they share some common uh, experience being soldiers, but also mothers in Israel are soldiers. You know, I met my wife in, in, in the army. I mean, the army is our national matchmaker, as you know. Uh, but uh, I think there is something else, and it has to do in the way the son feels he is being looked at by the mother. I, I think that there is this slight, very delicate sensation that, mother, the, that the mother sees him in a way that the father does not see him that the mother saw him exposed as a child, as a baby even. And he does not want to be exposed to her anxieties when he goes out there. I think that she, by her anxieties, by her skepticism regarding what, what he's doing there, he feels he's being weakened and he wants to buffer himself from this exposing look that mothers have. Yeah. And, and you see in the book how Offer all the time, the son, all the time tries to put distance between mm -hmm. him and, and his mother. He does not want her you know, to penetrate him and, and to, to arouse his doubts and suspicions. And by the way, Ora herself, the mother herself, is ambivalent because she says, what if the things I tell him that they will slow down his reaction in the moment mm -hmm. of truth? She's also afraid because she knows she sends him to, to the catastrophe zone of war. And she, I mean, in this zone, she wants him to be a good warrior, not in the sense that he will kill others. She tells him, don't dare to hurt anyone, but in the sense that maybe he will not be fast enough to defend himself. Yes, yeah, so there's the fear, the fear of disarming the son. I mean, yeah, yeah I th I th we won't go into what the psychoanalyst might... Uh, might make of uh, aspects of that. Or if there's a resident psychoanalyst, they might like to ask a question uh, 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 later on. Um, one of the things that's very striking about your writing is the degree of intimacy. I mean, at, at some points, it is almost unbearable. Thank you. I know. It sounds like a, your writing is unbearable, Mr. Grossman. <laughs> um, but but it, because it is so close in it, I mean, it seems to observe things about oneself that you hardly like to acknowledge. Uh, um, are there moments when you think, oh, that gives away a bit too much about me? 
if it gives too much about me, I will not write it. You know, th there is this beautiful saying by Roland Barthes in the entry, writing in his book, uh, Fragments of Love. He says that writing is to, to, to give interiority without disclosing privacy. And yeah, that's very French. How do you yeah. do that? Yeah. Uh, how do I do that? Well, I think if I, if I write in a way that people in, in some other countries and cultures, places that I have never visited, if they write me, you wrote about me, it is my book, it's my story, then, then I think I did it properly. Uh, I, you know, since I'm not writing about dark secrets or something like that. I just try to, to, understand, to understand myself or to understand some dark, people. Actually, dark secrets would be easier. Maybe, yeah. yeah, than, yeah you than, are right, yeah. More attractive, maybe. No, but, no, but, no, certainly not more attractive, but certainly, but, but, in a, but in a kind of funny way, easier. Maybe more easily dismissed um, or dealt with than these everyday bits of rawness and, and love, which to me feels sort of exceptionally permanent. Actually, it would be easier to talk about sex in a quasi-pornographic way, I think, sometimes than to, for me to talk in the language that you manage to speak in. You know, I think what matters in life is the, the, the nuances, the delicacies. We are tempted constantly to live a thick life, life that are formulated in thick words, words that are not precise, that are not uh, tuned, really. Uh, it has to do with the fact that such a great part of our life is, is formulated by, by the media, by the mass media. And I, I always feel that the, the, the name of this, the, the, the mass media, this uh, name, we think that it's a media that is uh, tuned or turned to the masses, but it's not. It's a media that make people into masses, and sometimes even into a mob, in, in, in the, the sentimentality of it, in the kitsch of it, in the vulgarity. You have been watching the Jubilee celebrations. <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder. Listen, I have enough troubles at home. Don't get me <laughs> troubles here. <laughs> I, and I must say, I really envy you for have this having this sequence of years of solidity, yes, yeah. this symbol of solidity. We do not have it, as, as, I, as I said before. Uh, so writing allows us, also as readers, I know how much my life has been changed by, by books that I have read, uh, to suddenly find the, the nuance that is us in this uh, you know, vagueness or, or thickness. Um, I want to take some questions from the floor in a moment. Um, you've already warned me that when I ask you what you're at work on, you're not going to give me a very helpful answer, but I've got to ask it anyway, because otherwise people will say, why didn't you ask him what he's at work on? Uh, I will tell, I mean, the book is out in Israel now for, for a year, uh, so it's not really a great secret, but... Uh, I wrote a book that is called Falling Out of Time, 
and it's a book that is a mixture of prose and poetry and radio play uh, and it, it's my first book that doesn't take place in Israel but in kind of everywhere and nowhere uh, what I can say is, is it, it's a book about uh, trying to understand life that that were invaded by death. That sounds very, very general. It's hard for me even to talk about it. Uh, it's about uh, life after a loss and, and uh, trying to understand this uh, mutual relationship between life and death, but in a very uh, simple and, and straightforward way. Uh, falling out of time, as I said, is the name, uh, and it will be here, I think, in in a year time. Um, and speaking of which, uh, absolutely a last question from me. Um, I'm struck by how beautiful the writing in um, "To the End of the Land" is, and and some of your other books as well. Um, obviously, you write in Hebrew and not in English, so this is translated. Um, uh, by Jessica Cohen. Are you, is a writer writing in another language aware of good and bad translation? And can a writer fully give credit to good translation? He has to. I mean, Hebrew is the only language that I really know, and I can judge. Uh, I can read the, the, the beautiful, beautiful translation of Jessica Cohen, and I, I think I can like it or not, but what do I really know about all the associations and connotations that a certain phrase arouses in you? Uh, they, they might be so different from what the connotation in Hebrew arouses. Mm. Yeah, there, there is a great mystery about this thing of translation. How is it possible? I will just tell you that now for, for the new book, for The Falling Out of Time, uh, because part of it is poetry and I thought it might be difficult for the translators, I asked some of them to come and we set together really? uh, six, seven uh, uh, translators and I read them the book out loud and I stopped after every poem or, or fragment and they start to discuss it and it was amazing because you could have seen the differences not only between the, the, the seven languages and cultures, but also between the seven personalities, you know. And th there were a place where the German translator would say, no, this is too emotional. And the Italian, and the Italian jumped on there and said, no, it's the exact temperature. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, if we could raise the house lights, that would be uh, terrific. Um, I've warned David about my partial blindness uh, and so on, so he will help me. I've already managed to uh, misgender at least the, three questions. Yeah, the, the, I all, you know. You, oh, he already decided <laughs> who he wants. Just, ah, yeah, I thought you wanted me to select. Please. Okay. I wonder if you could answer this. A, a lot of us, and I'm talking now, <coughs> Well, as a demi-Jew rather than a full one, because my father was Jewish and my mother wasn't. But a lot of us here listen to us um, uh, Israeli politicians who immediately, any of us try to question what they've done, point the finger and say, 
you're a self-hating Jew or you're an anti-Semite or whatever. And in particular, they point to the Shoah, to the Holocaust. I just wonder whether part of the problem which you describe of the fragility is because Israelis somehow cannot escape their past and therefore perhaps are continually running away from their future. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure what the question is. I mean, I, you know, I, we cannot escape our past, of course. Uh, the thing that worries me is uh, when my prime, prime minister, I can say prime ministers because it's, it's not something that started with Netanyahu, when they tend to confuse the real dangers that Israel faces with the echo of past trauma. And sometimes even to manipulate mm -hmm. uh, those echoes so they will become more and more concrete, real, and doom us to a certain political or military behavior. Uh, yet I do remember that there are dangers you know, uh, I do not think that anyone who criticizes Israel is an anti-Semite or a self-hating Jew, not at all. I just want that the same criteria that are uh, applied to other countries in such situation will be applied also to Israel. Uh, Israel lives in a very problematic region. We are not achieving peace, in, at least in the last years, uh, not only because of us. Uh, there is a great deal of responsibility, as I see it now, on the shoulders of the Palestinians who are making a terrible mistake by not initiating negotiation with Israel, but by waiting until Israel will stop building in the settlements. Now, I regard the settlements as an existential danger to Israel. For 30 years I'm fighting against it. But if the Palestinians continue to condition any progress in negotiation in total stoppage of that, they will be very just and right, but not very clever because the building continues and it creates a situation that will become more and more irreversible. Uh, the responsibility does not lie equally on the shoulders of both. I think Israel should be more responsible, more initiative, more daring, because we are the stronger one, we have more room of flexibility. I want that Israel will initiate peace. I want to achieve the peace of a two-state solution as long as it is possible. I'm not sure it will be possible for a long time. I want to have peace uh, for both sides, for the Palestinians, because I think they deserve to have their sovereign independent state. I want to see them flourishing. I want to see them living their life without my shadow as an occupier. I don't want to be anybody's shadow and I don't want anyone to shadow over me. I want to see how the Palestinians, these tormented people who for more than 100 years 
were under different terrible occupations. We are only the last of this chain. How they live their life with dignity, just like that, with equity, like everyone deserves. And I also, not also, but first and foremost, I want Israel to have peace because I think this will allow us, life of peace will allow us to start to recover from the deepest trauma of, of our past. You know, for me, one of the, the basic, the primal definitions of a Jew is of someone who has never really felt at home in the world, even when we lived in the most hospitable, friendly, protective places. We never really felt at home in the world. And creating the state of Israel was meant to allow us to have this place that will be a home, a real home, with everything that home, the idea of home, entails. Uh, to feel confident, to feel welcome, to, to, to know where you end and where the other starts. Unfortunately, Israel until now have not reached, has not reached this point. The place is yet not the real home that it should be. And it's not even a shelter that it should be because we are in such existential danger there from, from uh, almost all the time. Uh, only having peace will allow us to have a home, to have what I called before the solidity of existence, to have a sense that we have a future there, that we shall have this you know, long and secured future there. I, I sometimes tell this story about a, a television program that I saw some years ago where a, a foreign interviewer interviewed Israeli couples who were just married. And he asked one of the, the new uh, married uh, uh, woman, the bride, how many children do you, uh, will you have, you and your husband? And she immediately said three. He said, why three? I knew the answer already. She said, so if one of them is killed in the army, in wars or in terror acts, we shall still have two left. I, the interviewer, I saw him going pale under his makeup, and I thought, how distorted this is, that people want to have three children because of this calculation and not because having three children or even more. It's, it's fun and it's wonderful and it's life-giving, life-rewarding in, in a sense. Uh, as I said, you know, there are many good reasons to have peace between us and our neighbors. Territorial reasons, economic, security, all that, it's very important. But I believe that only having peace will bring us, the Jews and the Israelis, to a situation where we shall start to recover as a society, as a nation, even as, as a culture. Uh, and in that sense, having peace can be an existential change and remedy for us. And for me, this is the best reason to, to fight for peace in all, in all these years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. May, may the last question be yes, a literary one? Uh, yes. <laughs> Immediately, all hands dropped. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. Will you stand up? Yeah. 
Uh, can you wait till the microphone gets to you? Because we honestly yeah. can't hear you. I, I wonder if you have... I've read Sea Under Love three times, and each time I was absolutely overwhelmed by it. I wonder if you could just say a few things about that book, unless it's so far in the past that you, you care not to. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, will, I will say, I have one minute and a half, so I will say Sea Under Love is a book about the ability to, to believe in life and to bring children to this world after everything we know about what the, the Nazis did uh, and how everything, and, and in spite of everything we know about the options of human being to act in cruelty and brutality towards other human beings. And in a way, I think it will echo what I said before about to the end of the land, in a way about the power of creation or even the, the need to be creative, each one in his own way. You don't have to be a writer, but you just have to have this idea that you can re-articulate your situation in front of every arbitrariness, that you are never really doomed to, to be crushed under brutality. And this is what uh, the book about. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.